0: And thank you so much for listening to the podcast, and I appreciate your support.
1: Hello, friends, and welcome to the Stoic Coffee Break. My name is Eric Cloward. On today's episode, we're doing something new. Today's episode is an interview with Jeff Emptman. He is the co-host of the podcast, Here Be Monsters. Now, if you haven't listened to Hear Me Monsters, it's kind of an unusual and strange podcast. Um, it's about the mysterious, as Jeff likes to call it. Now, I met Jeff at Creative Live Podcast Week back in September, and he gave a presentation about story making and, and storytelling within a podcast format. And I found Jeff to be very thoughtful, very introspective, and just a very genuine and warm person. So I really thought he'd be an interesting person to interview on my podcast. Um, So in this interview, we talk a bit about the challenges that Jeff has faced in his life. Um, He had something handed to him that changed his career path for him when he was in college. And we also have a thoughtful discussion about philosophy and about how to apply philosophical principles and stoic ideas in daily life. So, I hope you enjoy the podcast, I hope you enjoy this interview with Jeff, and thanks again for listening. So today we're going to be talking with Jeff Emptman. he is the host and producer, co-producer on Here Be Monsters, which is really an interesting podcast, it's it's kind of beyond description, it's just one of those things you kind of have to listen to and uh, just kind of be surprised, and some of you may love it, some of you may kinda of listen to it and go, oh my God, what the hell is this? And uh but what's really neat about it is that each episode is something different and something interesting. Um so first Jeff uh go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience and uh tell us about what you're you're working on and uh anything you feel is important about you.
2: Yeah absolutely I mean I think you honestly did a pretty good job there, Eric and I appreciate you know um, I appreciate that i'm not the only one who kind of gets a disclaimer when introducing this show because it, it didn't take me very long after making the show to realize that um it, it there's a certain uh there's a certain subset of people that really like it and a certain subset of people that really hate it and that's fine you know um when i started i was trying to make a show that would be like the best show in the world for everyone. And I quickly realized that that wasn't something I was actually capable of doing. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I appreciate that you've picked up on that too. Uh, I'm working so, on a couple things right now. Um, just, just wrapped up, uh, just published this episode that I've been working on for a long time about, um, well, it's kind of about, it was kind of about the Santeria faith. Uh, if you're familiar with Santeria, um, but it was was more so about about family and loss and tragedy and that just came out on Wednesday um Wednesday what what date was that we're recording on the 12th so that was the 10th of October yeah. mm-hmm. um and um the the project that that's uh currently taking up my time is is the next episode which is going to be about um about this guy that I met who's building a nuclear fusion reactor uh, out of parts that he's dumpster diving from mit so
1: wow that yeah. sounds scary and interesting
2: you know i've been learning a little bit about nuclear fusion and it's it's not it, it is dangerous but significantly less so than fission mm-hmm. um i mean if if you can make it work uh, of course he's still in proof of concept yeah well i lived in uh, utah during the time that cold fusion came
1: out and there was a big hullabaloo about that so Hopefully. cold fusion
2: came out <laughs> cold fusion doesn't exist yet does it
1: no no i you should look it up um back in the 80s uh university of utah there were some professors who came out and said yes we've created cold fusion mm. and they published these results there was a big hullabaloo about it and then they went back and nobody could duplicate the results and they kind mm-hmm. of went, oh well you know it it sort of worked we got these kind of sort of readings and then yeah <laughs> pretty much just they were pretty much disgraced and lost all their funding
2: did you follow the the stuff around the m drive out of ego works at uh at the JPL NASA's Mm-mm. um it's like NASA's experimental wing um and these these researchers who are kind of like uh, uh do you know do you know like um what was that called like the new earth army that like division of the the United States military that was supposed to figure out if esp was real you know no. about this, you, this you know is the, all kind of new for me um is it is a, a john ronson book that turned into the movie the men who stare at goats mm. did you ever see Hold, that?
1: okay i i didn't i was outside the theater one time where they had a giant cutout of george clooney dressed yeah. in his outfit sitting at a at a table so i have a picture of me staring at this cutout of george clooney mm. like he's staring at a goat he's staring right at me
2: it was kind of amusing yeah so anyways that that kind of idea is like you see, like, there's like, these Hail Mary departments of the government that's like there's no way this works, but just in case it does, like we want to be the ones who figure out ESP, you know and and so like NASA has this kind of similar um scenario where where they have this this lab called Eagle Works where they just like throw a little bit of money to like these five ish or so researchers who try and break the laws of physics. And they posted positive results here, uh, maybe four years ago or something, saying that they made an engine that doesn't exhaust anything. It doesn't. It doesn't push anything out, which really breaks the understanding of Newtonian physics. And mm-hmm. the amount of force that it was generating was so so small that to believe that the results of the paper were not just due to I don't know, like someone walking down the hall you know shaking the floor ever so slightly it it involved a certain amount of it it, it was it was like a good litmus test for what what kind of scientist you were whether or not you trusted these results or not and of course um it was something very hard to replicate that i don't think anyone has successfully done yet yeah yeah all right so i'm working on nuclear physics uh (laughs) piece right now also, of course, a little bit about like Jungian thought and and archetypes, and you know, it's it's always a mix of things. It's never just mm-hmm. like just like a show about nuclear fusion or just a show about Santeria. Excellent.
1: So you said a little bit back there that when you first started out, you were trying to make a show to please everybody, and then you realized shortly that that wasn't going to be the case. How
2: did you move past that?
1: What was it that you How did you develop kind of that, uh, I guess, thicker skin or that ability to just kind of disconnect from that?
2: Well, I mean, doesn't everyone kind of wake up one day when they're young and be like, I think I have what it takes to be the greatest human being who's ever lived, right? Mm. Everyone everyone has that thought for a day, right? Maybe for a minute or a a moment. I had that thought for a little bit longer. I mean, I say that mostly as a joke, but like, I, I thought that for a long time, that, you know, despite all of our differences in the world, that deep down, like secretly, everyone kind of thought of the world in the same way I did. And um they either just didn't realize it or they didn't know it. You know, it's like a very, it's a very self interested, um, kind of narcissistic thought to be like, I have the same thoughts as everyone else. Even though it seems very actually that seems very um seems very egalitarian. Uh, on one level, but I think it is kind of a form of narcissism um, or self-love uh, to to think that you know everyone else is just slightly different versions of you. And you know, after making this show for a while and, and hearing some of the responses to it, I very quickly realized that actually uh, a pretty a pretty small percentage of people think about things in the way I do, even so much in, in just like a very practical. Level is sometimes I make music for the show, and people are like, Oh, I like that creepy sound effect, or like that creepy song. You know, I was like, That wasn't supposed to be creepy, that was just supposed to be like <laughs> thoughtful and reflective. But like, I there's a there, I've, I've found that there's a decent percentage of the world that hears any kind of like deep bass note as creepy, you know, mm. and that's that's just not, not how I experience the world. So that's like a more practical example of how how I've noticed that but but on the on the much larger scale like yeah like uh, people are different it's just a stupid simple observation but but it took me a really long time to get there
1: yeah i think that we all kind of do that and there's always that thought experiment like kind of very strongly solipsistic which is you know am i the only one who has thoughts in this world and is everybody just a figment of my imagination mm-hmm. and as you get older you you know it's still that whole thought experiment of this could be reality, but then you realize that it doesn't even matter if that's what reality is or not. There's all these other figments of your imagine, if you, imagination, if you will. They're doing their own thing and liking their own things, so you have to learn to be okay
2: with that. Hmm. So but that's was Descartes. Yeah, I, Descartes was the the evil, the evil, uh, the evil demon guy, right? He. Uh, I, I heard there was a book that I was
1: reading where they talked about Descartes and what kind of happened with him. From my understanding is that he was a very strong philosopher, had came up with some great ideas and some mathematical ideas, and some of his probability theories were phenomenal. And then suddenly he got ultra-religious and basically, I mean, almost went down this path of incredible self-loathing that humankind was just this lost, fallen thing. Who's, who's the modern Descartes then Eric? Oh, modern Descartes. Um, trying to think who I put in that. I, I tend to shy away from people like that. Um, I grew up in a very religious community, so mm-hmm. anything that even smacks of strong, negative religion just really kind of br- makes me bristle. And so I, I just don't really listen to those kind of people anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I just found that uh, oftentimes religion is too much of a cudgel to beat other people over the head and to, you know, it's definitely a form of control. So for me, that's not something I, I really subscribe to. I think that, I think that, you know, people are going to do what they're going to do. And the best thing you can do is try to urge them to do better things, to help them to do better things, but you can't make anybody do anything they don't want to do. And I think that's where a lot of I think that's where a lot of our stress in this world comes from is trying to control all those
2: things that we can't. I mean, that's that's kind of the uh, uh, let, let me let me tell you what Stoicism is about, Eric, on on the show. <laughs> but Stoicism, which is Please a do. topic I've I've studied uh, only in the briefest in the briefest um, form. But when I've when I've tried to describe Stoic- Stoicism to people in a sentence before, what I've said is. Um, you tell me if this is right or wrong. I've said, uh, worry about the things that you can actually control and and don't worry about the things that you cannot control or influence.
1: Yep. I think that's, that's kind of the core fundamental rule. And that's something that, that I struggle with a lot. So there are a lot of things in my life where I find that I get really angry about things and, and frustrated and, you know, oftentimes lash out at things and, Usually it's because it's something that I think I should have control over and I don't. And so I try to use that anger to control those things.
2: This might be something that you've talked about on the show that I, uh, on an episode I haven't heard yet. But um, my, my critique of that thought has always been this, that I've noticed many points in my life when I've thought I couldn't do something and then I realized I could. And it seems like I could hear a pretty valid critique of Stoicism being like, well, you're just kind of encouraging yourself to underestimate your potential for change in the world. Mm. Like, how do you how what do what do Stoics think about how you're supposed to uh, accurately evaluate what you actually have control or influence over versus what you don't like? I'm not I don't think that anyone's running around saying I can prevent the heat death of the universe, Mm -hmm. but you know, I might be able to convince 500 people to vote for a candidate, you know, something that seems outsized, like something that seems out of my control. Like, how do you determine what you can and can't control in stoicism?
1: For me, the way that I've kind of broken it down is that what you can control is how you do something. It's the process of what you do. But when you try to control the outcome of what you do, that's where you run into trouble. So, for example, if you... If you say, well, I'm only successful if I convince 500 people to go out and vote, then that's something that's outside of your control. Hmm. But if you say that I'm going to be successful by writing a good speech, booking a place where I'm going to give that speech, inviting as many people as I can possibly think of and encouraging other people to invite their friends so that I can give this speech and hopefully I will influence a certain number of people. If you don't worry about the outcome, if you worry about the process and doing that really well and let the chips fall where they may, you've controlled what you can, which is how something gets done. But you can't control the outcome of it because there's so many factors and so many things outside of your control. I mean, it may rain that day. There may be a tornado that day. There could be a flood that day. So your great speech that you prepared for and did all these things for, maybe you only get 10 people to actually go out and vote. So it's focusing on the process, at least kind of that's how I... I've learned to think of it is that it's process over outcome and you need to do do good work and let the chips fall where they may. And that's where you can really have a much better distinguishing line of this is something I control. This is something I can't control. At least that's my definition of it.
2: Yeah. I always wonder about that, about like, I mean, so, so these days I, I've quit my day jobs currently and mm. I, I don't say permanently because you know, <laughs> you know that's that's a bad um that's a bad way way to do things but a, a lot of my day jobs in the past have been jobs and i do this intentionally jobs where i can tell if i'm good at it or not you know mm-hmm. because the problem with podcasting and and all creative fields is that, i mean i guess there's metrics on on like the very strangest of levels which is like with podcasts you can like kind of tell how many people downloaded or listened to something but it's Mm -hmm. like not not good metrics and and of course popularity isn't a sign that you're good at something whereas like one of my last jobs was uh working as a bike courier and we had a computer system where i could occasionally go in and like view my reports and i wasn't supposed to have access to this but i could totally see it i could compare my delivery times to other drivers Mm -hmm. and I was like oh you know I'm not the fastest but I'm definitely not the slowest I'm in like the top half of the heap and I haven't been hit by a car ever so I was like oh so like I can I can feel satisfied knowing that I'm actually good at this whereas you know at least in in America like a, a lot of those jobs are kind of disappearing to computers and outsourcing right and and kind of what's left for a lot of people are these less um tactile jobs that have like numbers associated with them and i always have trouble feeling uh satisfied with my work because all i have is like the internal validation and like external validation from friends occasionally whereas i don't have those like numbers you know i can't be like oh i'm like in the like top you know, whatever, tier. But it seems like the problem that I've always had with that is that it relies, like that kind of satisfaction relies on a feeling of superiority over other people, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much a comparison to other people. Right. And
1: that's where the Stoics are. So that, according to the Stoics, would be a, a clear example of something that you can't control. You can't control how good somebody else is at something you're doing. You can only control how good you are at something.
2: Oh, but, but with the bike thing, I could work harder. And I could scoot my <laughs> way up the ranks, right? Uh-huh. I could control that. Like, if I had yeah. looked at that chart, because I, I wasn't, like, a great employee. I was, like, a decent employee. Uh-huh. You know, like, I didn't rob the company and I didn't do anything terrible to anyone. But I definitely could have worked harder. And if I had found out I was on the bottom of the heap, I probably would have worked harder. Mm-hmm. Just because I don't like... I don't like being... Like having a number on me that, you know, I'm not sure if it's healthy or not. Like I can see, like, as I say it, it sounds like it's kind of unhealthy. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, if I think that it can be, I think that some people do get wrapped up in comparison. I know that 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 was something that I struggled with as well in different aspects of my life. So I don't, I don't think you're unusual in that. Um, I find as I get older, I just don't care as much. (laughs) So... And I don't think it's necessarily an attitude of, well, I just don't care, but it's, I think that I'm getting to that place where, like I said, where I focus on trying to do good work and I don't really care about the outcome of it. I mean, I do in an aspect, like on this podcast, for example, I I do like looking at my numbers. I check them out probably every couple of days and it's, it's kind of nice to see, you know, the number of downloads going up and, you know, I'm like, oh, I wish I could do these things. But what I recognize, so at the uh, conference that I met you at with, you know, Tim Ferriss, when he gave me that advice, he's just like, work on mastering your craft. And that's really what it came down to, that that was the main thing that I could control and that would drive things. And so I look at the numbers mostly just as an encouragement to like, hey, yeah, people, people are actually digging this. This is really cool. And that's about all I can do because there's nothing that I can do to push those numbers by any means. I think Dan Meisner at the same conference gave a really big thing where he talked about numbers of things. And he goes, basically, this is what your your podcast is probably going to look like. And it was just this long, slow growth. He goes, now, occasionally, you're going to get this little hockey stick like I got right here. And that was where he, there was something where he'd been featured on some really, really well-known podcast. And they said, hey, this is one of my favorite podcasts and got a shout out on that. And then, you know, he saw this sudden bump in his numbers and it went up from there. But usually it's just going to be that slow growth like that. And that's something to, you know, again, I can't control how fast that grows. I mean, yes, I could go out and buy ads on Facebook and do those other things. But even then, you know, who knows how that's going to be. So I've just continued to do this because it's something that I'm growing from. Every time I have to dig into a topic and really think about these ideas, I internalize them a little bit more. And these are things that I really need to learn. So usually I'm, I'm writing about something that I'm really struggling with and going, oh my gosh, I suck at this. Or, you know, I had a fight with my partner about this and I'm really struggling with, with this, with this thing. And so, I don't know, that's how I found to kind of move past those things.
2: Yeah. If, if you felt like you were making good work, but instead of a slow incline, you had a slow decline, would you change anything or no? Hmm. I think I
1: might change some things if it was like my living and it was what I had to do you know it might be one of those things where it's like okay I'm going to write the music I want or do this thing that I want and I'm also going to do this thing to please people I mean I think a hmm. lot of artists do that they, they find that blend of of doing things that that pay the bills and doing things that you know feed their soul and finding that balance is, it's hard. And I've struggled with that a lot. And like you said, you, you've quit your day jobs for now and uh, just focusing solely on the podcast. And if your podcast number is starting to go down and you maybe you lost some sponsorships,
2: would you change things? Well, see, I'm in a strange situation because I, I don't rely on download numbers for my living. I rely mm-hmm. on, um, yet again, another, like, Soft thing that is not based in metrics, which I struggle with, which is that I'm part of a larger radio station Mm -hmm. that pays me a flat amount every month. Oh, nice. Which, in some regards, is so nice because I don't spend every moment thinking about audience and it frees me up to like try more experimental things. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't get that direct feedback or, for that matter, that direct incentive to go out and write an email to every podcaster i know and be like hey can you do that dan meisner thing for me can you wait what you you just mentioned you know like can you can you like reference me on your show and you know get those download numbers up because my um i'm not as motivated by fame as i once thought i was i'm motivated by like having a House where I can feel at peace and like the ability to, you know, hit ten o'clock at night and like start um start up my music software and and drink a beer and like poke out some ideas, you know, or like right now, like I'm trying to figure out how to 3D model Jello, you know, on the computer, and it's like, do these things have any? impact on the actual world i don't know because like i'm kind of in this unicorn situation and i don't quite know how to feel about that where i do i do work a lot i I work you know full time but um is it is it actually worth anything you know
1: um i don't know that's something that i think all of us have to figure out is you know figuring out what is the thing that's going to fulfill us. And if we looked out, you know, that's another big Stoic thought is looking to the opinions of others. If we rely too much on the opinions of others, then we're relying on something that we don't have control over. And if our happiness is tied to that, then, yeah, that can be very difficult. So I think learning to find that that kind of inner peace, that that inner tranquility, which is one of the biggest things of Stoicism, is finding that inner tranquility, so that the opinions of others don't change our happiness it's nice to have but it's one of those like if somebody doesn't like what we're working on okay not a big deal and it's sometimes easier to say than do <laughs> so yeah. i think you're in a you're in a pretty good spot on that so one of the things that i remember uh from the conference that we talked about um you talked a bit about your eyes and how you had started off down one path for your career. And because of your vision, you ended up changing that. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'd gone to school for photography, uh, mostly I'd gone, I mean, it was an interdisciplinary school, but it was, I was mostly studying photography and I was looking to become a professional photographer. Um, I, I had already started having some doubts about it as I got later into college. And as I actually started meeting real professional photographers, And I, at the same time, was becoming more and more interested in sound. Um, At the time, I thought that the secret plan was to eventually make movies. And the path towards that would be to focus on visual and then focus on sound and then try and combine the two together at some point down the line. Some later point, I haven't thrown that out entirely, but I kind of had a... um, a situation handed to me from the universe, uh, that was out of my control, which is that, uh, just God, what was it? It was like, it was like a couple days after I graduated college, I woke up one morning and, and I thought my contact prescription needed changing because in my left eye, I started noticing like kind of a blurriness and like a halo around some things. It was very mild at first, but I went to a, a doctor pretty soon after that, and and he sent me to um, a big city uh, same day. Like, he sent me to this place like an hour and a half away the same day so that I could see someone same day. And, and then the next day, I stayed overnight at a hotel with my mom, and then the next day they told me that I had a, uh, a de- kind of degenerative a uh, genetic retina condition that, um, well, it would be degenerative if it wasn't treated. Uh, and I, if, if it wasn't treated, I would eventually lose vision in my left eye. Um, so they at me with a bunch of laser beams and after a couple years of, of treatments and, and cataract surgery, um, I eventually, uh, have pretty stable vision in my left eye now, but, Throughout this period, I was kind of fluctuating between corrected, you know, twenty twenty vision with my contacts in. Um, down at one point, I was seeing like 2150 out of my left eye. And it was wow. just, it was, it was, it was like kind of this wild fluctuation. And, and um, at the same time, I was like having these like very mild visual hallucinations, and the world kind of looked like it was pinching in on itself. Um, and it, it kind of killed slowly my deep interest that I once had in photography and replaced it with that same deep interest in sound. And that's, that's when I started making the podcast was right after it was about, it was about six months after I got that diagnosis. So the first season of shows was like pretty heavily influenced by not being able to see much out of my, out of my left eye. Wow. And how did you feel internally about that? Were you um, scared? Or? Well, it was, it was, it's a very rare condition. And I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, a, I, I'm a very unusual case for it because almost, almost everyone that has it is uh, either under 10 years old or, or has adult onset diabetes. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm neither of those two. So there's still some uncertainty about it, but at the time there was a lot of uncertainty about it because they weren't quite sure I'd been diagnosed. Right. And, um, they were worried that it was going to happen to my right eye as well. And that could still happen at any point. Uh, my vision today out of my left eye is like, if I close my right eye, it's like good enough to walk around. Um, it'd be good enough to do everything except read probably. Um, everything's just a little bit blurry and a little, like literally like a little bit twisted, like there's a little twist to it, but it's enough to get around. Um, uh, it wasn't that way. It wasn't that way back then. I, I, I was, I was fairly certain back then that I was going to lose my left eye, Mm -hmm. um, which would mean, you know, pretty significant change of lifestyle. Um, yeah. Yeah. I ride my bike a lot and it's very important to me to ride my bike. And I was like thinking about what that would mean for me to lose that as like my, uh, way of getting around, you know, I'd have to walk everywhere or take the bus or hire someone to drive me or marry someone who could drive me mm-hmm. or marry <laughs> really What I was really looking for was like a life partner that would be like down to ride front seat of a tandem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) i don't think i've ever told anyone that before no that's great Um, great. because i was very convinced i was going to lose my vision uh Mm -hmm. i i got really lucky i had good doctors um but i do often wonder you know like had had the situation happened differently and i i did you know um lose lose my vision in my left eye what kind of change i would make and you know my show is distributed by KCRW and there's another really great show from KCRW called The Organist which on its surface is is kind of a literary show but it's not really a literary show it's like it's like a show about the world and I love the host of that show Andrew Leland and he and I during kind of the height of my uh uh it's kind of weird to say this, but like the height of my vision loss, um, he and I kind of bonded over this false pretense where I kind of told him I was going to lose an eye, uh, an eye's vision. And and we kind of bonded over this because he has a degenerative retinal condition mm-hmm. um, and he is very slowly going from full vision down to pinpricks. Uh, losing his peripheral, just you know, a day at a time, a day at a time, and he's been doing this process for the last ten or fifteen, maybe twenty years or so, um, wow. and he's he's just um, just crossed the threshold of legal blindness in in the state of Massachusetts, and so he's doing braille training and and you know starting to use his cane more often and whatnot, and um, he can still see out of the center of his vision, you know, um, but but you know, pretty, pretty impactful kind of vision loss. Um, and, and a lot of his show recently, he's been doing these really great monologues at the front, talking about that transition to blindness and, and really changing my perspective on something I thought I had thought a lot about, you know, um, -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if his thoughts would be considered, uh, stoic thoughts, but they're thoughts that, that, remind me that you know life is more than seeing things because i've definitely had that thought before Mm -hmm. that that my life would be ruined if i lost half of my vision you know what i mean Mm -hmm. Um, yeah yeah i've lost about a tenth of it you know yeah wow that's that's
1: yeah, my vision is really good. I have reading glasses that mm-hmm. I have to use every now and then. Um, but lately, my vision has been—it it kind of goes in and out, and so it's been really good lately. So, while well, I cannot even closely relate to what you guys are talking about, I think that's that's pretty amazing. So, do you think that the your eye condition has changed kind of your relationship with sound? Then,
2: yeah. Um, when I made the transition fully from, uh, audio, excuse me, when I made the transition from photo to audio, I felt a little behind because I'd spent so much of my time focused on this one way of, of perceiving the world. Mm -hmm. And so what I, what I did when, when my vision started going is I started saying, well, okay, like, I had this big focus on dusk and dawn mm-hmm. in, in my photography work. Um, I I've learned a lot about these, these time periods in the day and, and also like the concepts that go around them, the thought process I have around these, these times of day, um, the characters, you know, the animals that show up, the, the, uh, uh, like way light hits, objects and I tried my best to translate all of that knowledge into audio as well. And so the, the aesthetic of the show is really the aesthetic of my photography, but translated into into an audio format. Um of course not everything translates but it's I, I, I took as much of it as I could and tried to expand yeah. upon it as much as I could in the sound um in the sound world so especially in my early work god there's like crickets everywhere in it like everything (laughs) is crickets um and and i have kind of a nostalgia for that sound i don't really use them much anymore but that's like a very obvious obvious way of doing it there's there's more uh you know softer conceptual things that that i i also took from my photography um and brought with me
1: i like that i like that idea of taking your perspective from one one sense and then trying to adopt that perspective, you know, with a different sense and seeing how you can kind of apply those. That's, that's really interesting. Um, I remember there was one thing you said at the conference that really just, you know, as you were talking, that really just floored me. And it was that as you were losing your vision, you talked about how you were seeing these hallucinations, these weird things happening. And, and you're like, what I learned is that I can't trust my senses. you, don't believe everything you see and that your eyes will lie to you. And I thought that was, that was very kind of a profound thing that, you know, we think that we see the world in a certain way, or we think that we see reality for what it really is. And just something as small as a little, you know, a little flaw in the eye can change what your reality is. I mean, if, if that had happened to you, if, or if you saw, it, like you said, it almost seemed like there was a black hole going on there. You know, if you didn't know what that was, you'd almost think that reality was turning into a black hole.
2: You know, for for a while, um, I would occasionally, I would occasionally do this little exercise with myself, where I would cover up my right eye, so my good eye, and I would just leave myself with my left eye, my my bad eye, or is what I what I uh, more euphemistically called my magic eye, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because my magic eye would like kind of twist and distort the world and pinch it in around the center. And there was a dead spot in the middle that would sometimes have this, this color floating around in it that was both green and black at the same time. It was this impossible color of green and black and like fluorescent. It was like glowing. You know what I mean? It It was, it was a result of these, these laser treatments that I was getting. And, um, and it was like the after image in my retina essentially, um, And so I'd like walk around the house and it's like, it's like, again, my vision was bad, but it wasn't, you know, like I could stumble around. I could like, I could like move around and I knew kind of how my house was. So I could like get around and, and, and I would just, you know, just even after like five or 10 minutes of having your, having my, my, my good vision obscured, um, I would start to get used to it, you know? And I've never been good at putting this in words, but like, like when the world is blurry, uh, my brain would just adjust to it at a certain point. Mm. And, and like things that seem very obvious would like when, when I had my good eye open just weren't noticeable. And so it was this incredible rush to like do that for five or 10 minutes and like look at the wall or look at like, I had this like wooden, uh, uh, like mantle over the fireplace and like wooden backdrop back there at the time and just look at it and be like, wow, that's some like beautiful woodwork there. And then take my other hand off of my eye and be like, Oh my God, there's like detail in the grain. There's like these knots in the wood. There's these cracks. There's like a cobweb up at the ceiling, like all this stuff that, you know, it felt like I had like supervision for a second. When instead mm-hmm. I had like normal vision, you know, like twenty twenty 20 vision. Um, uh-huh. it, it felt like supervision for a minute, you know? And one thing I try to remember, I mean, I always used to think about hawks as a kid, you know, the hawk with the, the incredible vision. Cause we had hawks where I grew up like red tailed hawks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they can see a mouse running from whatever, like, 50 feet up in the air you know they can see a mouse scooting around on the ground um and that like us humans that that think we have good vision or good any sense you know it's it's just it's just like if if you know it's it's an incredibly a matter of perspective because compared to compared to the hawk the best human vision is still shit you know Mm -hmm. just just varying levels of bad yeah. Um, so yeah there, there's a lot of perspective there I, I hear it in sound sometimes too when when a, a mixing engineer I hear it a lot in independent movies when a mixing engineer forgets that wireless lav mics make really high pitched tones and I've mm-hmm. got pretty good high pitch hearing and so a lot of times in independent movies you'll just hear like this meep meep like little mosquito sounds as, like, as it like cuts to someone using a wireless lav um because because these these older mix engineers, usually older mix engineers have um, uh, damaged hearing or just naturally mm-hmm. degrading hearing that uh, prevents them from hearing those highest of pitches. And they just right. never let someone under the age of 30 listen to their project before it goes live. Um, and there's just these things that are entirely invisible to them that act as kind of a tell, a, a way of, of knowing something that the movie maker didn't want you to know about the movie. Interesting. Just that there were no young people in the room. (laughs) No, that's
1: fascinating. Um, The Stoics are huge on the idea of perception is always opinion. What you perceive is never fact, but it's always just your opinion of the world. And because we can't ever know a, a purely objective reality, we can only know our perspective of reality. And that's, that's interesting listening to it. I really like that idea of having, you know, this is this is my magic vision and this is my supervision. And I think having that contrast can really help you appreciate, you know, the vision that you do have. But also I like the fact that you appreciated what you also had. You know, you appreciated the magic, that it was this interesting way of, of viewing the world. And I think this, is, this has been really interesting. I, I love the fact that you took something that could have been so discouraging, so damaging, and rather than letting it you know sink your world, you're like, well, okay, um audio looks interesting. let's <laughs> let's move over there and basically you've you know the Stokes have a thing where they talk about the obstacle is the way that the troubling things that come up in our lives, the challenging things in our lives that come up in our lives are the things by going through them by working through these they are the way that we get stronger and they are the way that we move towards the good things in our life. And to me, I don't know, I, just from my perspective, I see how you took this one thing that other people would just would have been like, Oh my gosh, my world is over. This is the end of it. And you went, okay, well this changes things and let's, let's see where this goes. And so far I think it's worked out pretty well for you. At least if you want my, if you want my humble opinion (laughs) an outside opinion, Um, I really enjoy your podcast I the mood the vibe of it is it's very haunting it's very visceral and for me you know I I like those unusual things I like those things that kind of keep you guessing on your feet Uh, the one episode that I first listened to was the one about the video game and the canoeing trip and the the this weird kind of transition between those two of just moving from one right to the other without saying I'm in this one or that one uh, was a little bit uh, disorienting at first, but it was also really cool because, you know, something you talk about praying to, I was praying to my God and I think it was like Baylor or Bajor or something like that. And it just, I'm like, whoa, where, wh- what, what? <laughs> Where did the... Oh, okay, he's... That's where that's coming from, man. It's kind of like my brain was just kind of like had to scramble for a minute to figure out what you were talking about. Then it was like, oh, okay, like Dungeons & Dragons, you have... Okay, that kind of thing. And, yeah. So then also the other one that really touched me was uh, the woman from, I think it was Norway, talking about her father and and growing up and trying to understand that situation. You know, just these really touching stories that are very also very mysterious and very haunting at the same time. And I don't know, I think you, I think you're doing something great and I think you should definitely keep doing what you're doing. At least I, I really enjoy
2: what you're doing. Well, thank you, Eric. I really appreciate that. You know, um, those are, those are more recent episodes and I, I, you know, I still feel like I'm getting better at this. This is the thing I'm terrified of, you know, not so much, not so much the numbers going down, but like the day when I wake up and I'm like, oh God, like I used to be better at this. You mm-hmm. know, that's what I'm scared of and that will probably happen at some point. But um, these recent episodes, I've been challenging myself on a lot and and I'm glad that some of that has come through to you as a listener.
1: Oh, for sure. But I also like your very first episode, I, I listened to that and I... I laughed out loud. I was walking through New Seasons, which is like kind of a Whole Foods here locally. Mm -hmm. And when you said, when you talked about dragging Maine, I I did a a loud snort because I lived in a small town once for a year, uh, my freshman year in high school in Southern Utah. And they had one flashing red light to show you to Mm -hmm. slow down at the the one intersection that was the crossroads. Um, And... It And when I first moved down there, I'd been living out in the metro D.C. area. So, you know, we've got several million people packed in, you know, uh, very tight spaces and so on. I mean, it was huge living out there, you know, millions and millions of people. Then going down to 1,200 people in the middle of the desert. Uh, it was very shocking. And then what they did was they would drag Maine. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why would you do that? That's so boring. And they're like, well, there's nothing else to do. <laughs> and it was just like, I could it, it was just a very strange feeling so when you said that I just as you were leading up to it this is what they do, and I just started laughing right as you said dragging main <laughs> yeah. just... you probably have so... to put
2: a uh, like an asterisk in there for all of your metropolitan Met- metropolitan listeners who have never heard that phrase before yeah yeah little, and it's just it's... like a little audio asterisk of dragging mane. like cross reference yeah. that in the Webster's you know
1: Yep. And, and in this town, basically Main Street was about a mile long for the, you know, the, the borders of the town. And so they would just drive down one side and drive down the other. And, <laughs> and you, see somebody what people hap- are doing. Yeah. And the, yeah. And the thing was, is, this halftime, there wasn't really people doing much of anything. Mm-hmm. It was just, but it was just,
2: they didn't have anything else to do. And yeah. Well, so the dogs might be doing something, you know, sometimes <laughs> the dogs are doing interesting things. You can watch them. Yeah, yeah. It was a really interesting thing, and it and it, it certainly made me laugh. Yeah. On but, uh, just one last thing, like mm-hmm. I grew up. So I grew up outside of my my town in the country, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's this one guy who would walk on the gravel road. He would walk um each morning for exercise, you know. And he had a dog, and the dogs were all bored, and so they would all just tag along in the mornings. And so he would go. Around each morning and essentially I mean he didn't he didn't have to do anything they just showed up he would essentially like pick up each dog at the end of its driveway and walk with it for a while and then he would turn around and walk home and each dog would just run back up its own driveway (laughs) you know back to where it lived so he would walk every dog in the in the I can't call it a neighborhood but like in the mile-long stretch between his house and mine wow Um, so yeah our dog would sometimes just run out there to the end of the road and he was essentially dragging main, but it wasn't Main Street. It was just a gravel road. <laughs> yeah.
1: Wow, yeah, that's. Well, dogs are very social too. They want yeah. they want to be able to do something. So, very cool. Well, Jeff, I know that uh, we're getting close on time here, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I just uh, I think we'll go ahead and wrap up here. But hey, I just want to say I really appreciate this. Uh, and like I said, this is my very first interview, so. Um, I'm not sure when this is gonna be out, but uh yeah. Yeah, send
2: me a link, you know?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'll pretty... keep
2: listening too. I've been enjoying the recent episodes.
1: Oh, I appreciate it. So it's it's definitely it's definitely a stretch for me. Like you said, you're always challenging yourself. It's definitely a stretch for me to take these ideas and and kind of pull the meat out of them as best I can and not just, you know, give a surface, hey here's a great here's a, here's a quote and, you know, have a nice day. It's kind of like, well, here's a quote and here's, here's kind of the deeper stuff in it. And it, when I'm writing, I'll sometimes find that, that little thing where it's like, oh, there's that nugget that I want. And it's that little bit of discovery that's, Mm. that keeps driving me just like how you were talking about challenging yourself, you know, with these different things and, and who knows, we'll see where the show goes, but uh, I appreciate you being my first guest and uh, thanks again.
2: Absolutely. Anytime, Eric
1: hey friends thanks for listening to the podcast if you like what you hear i would really appreciate if you could help support me by making a pledge on patreon you can find me at patreon.com stoiccoffee stoic coffee even just a small amount helps in keeping this podcast going also head on over to my website at www.stoic.coffee and sign up for our weekly newsletter and lastly if you know someone that might like or could benefit from this podcast please share it with them Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help this podcast grow. Thanks again for listening.